unpack this idea for the rest of our time tonight. So here's your big truth. What you believe about the gospel determines every facet of your spiritual life. What you believe about the gospel determines every facet of your spiritual life. So I want us to pull that truth out with a lot of gospel-focused statements. And I'm just going to kind of begin to work through this list. That is, if you are not a Christian, but you want to experience the forgiveness of Christ, it begins with the gospel message. If you are trying to grasp the depth of God's love, if you're wondering, does God care at all about me, it begins with a focus on the gospel message. If you are thinking to yourself right now, maybe as a skeptic, how does Christ's life, how does his death, how does his resurrection have any bearing on my life today? The answers are going to be found in the gospel message. If you're a Christian, it is important to remember that the gospel is going to be the key to your spiritual growth. It's not just the good news that saves, it is the good news that sanctifies. Maybe you have been overwhelmed by the demands of religion, and you're just thinking, there's got to be more, there's got to be freedom. There is. It's found in the gospel. Do you want a stronger prayer life? Thank you for both of you for saying yes on that. <laughs> I was thinking that, that's kind of a no-brainer, like, yes, I want one. Okay, here it is. Did you know your ability to pray is because you have a mediator, and you have a mediator because you have placed faith in the gospel message. Do you want to be led by the Spirit? There you go. You got it that time. The Spirit indwells you because of a faith-based response to the gospel. When people doubt their salvation, when they feel as though they can lose their salvation, if they have lost the joy of their salvation, it always links back to a gospel issue. In fact, the difference between bondage and freedom, being legalistic or grace-filled, experiencing burnout or divine empowerment are all traced back to our understanding of as well as our application of the gospel. So here's that big truth for you once again. What you believe about the gospel determines every facet of your spiritual life. Is it any wonder that the apostle Paul told the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified is it any wonder that Jesus shared the gospel everywhere he went mark chapter 9 verse 35 is it any wonder that the apostle paul did all things for the sake of the gospel first corinthians 9:23 the christian life flows out of relationship and relationship is grounded in the gospel message so knowing all of that knowing its significance, knowing how it impacts the believer's life, if you were Satan and you wanted to disrupt a follower of Christ, if you wanted to hurt their life now and in generations to come, how would you strategically focus your attack on the gospel? The gospel is what allows a person to experience all that God has designed for them. What you believe about the gospel determines every facet of your spiritual life. The most dangerous teachings to impact the church have never been from atheism. They have never been from pagan belief systems with religion. They have never come from cults that openly reject 
the claims of Christ, the, the most dangerous teachings that have shipwrecked lives and have created confusion are those that teach half-truths about the gospel while inserting unscriptural teachings that don't seem significant at the moment. Listen to the statement. The gospel cannot be modified and still be the gospel. It cannot be modified and still be the gospel. So today we are going to pick up in our study of Galatians where right now in chapter 1 we'll be in verses 6 through 10 and we're going to read the entire section because it all comes as a package but we're going to focus specifically on what we find in verse number 6. And by the way, there's so much in verse number 6 I could stretch it over about three weeks right now. But we're going to try, we're going to try to get through one verse tonight. Verse number six. So today I'm going to be sharing the first of four warnings about corrupting the gospel. I'm speaking tonight on the subject, four warnings about corrupting the gospel. Let's read the text starting in verse number six, have prayer, and we'll move forward from there. It says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, a different gospel. Notice every time the word gospel pops up. If you're wondering why I just had so many statements on the gospel, notice how many times it's mentioned in these verses, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what you have, have had preached to you, he is to be accursed. And as we have said before, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we get into this text tonight, God, I am praying that your spirit would guide into truth. Lord, may the, the truths, the depths, the beautiful facets of the gospel, may it come out. God, gospel is one of those words that we've heard so many times we often think we know everything about it until you stop us and you say, you don't. There's more. God, I need you tonight to stop us in our tracks and help us to see what maybe we've been missing at different points along the way. God, may we not rush through your word, but may your spirit stop us and guide us into truth this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. There are two New Testament categories, general categories, for those who, according to Scripture, are to be accursed, are to those who are set apart for destruction. The first group is comprised of people who do not love the Lord. The text for that is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. It says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. The second group is comprised of false teachers, and its corresponding text is found Galatians chapter 1, right here in verses 8 and 9. 
So Jesus warned against false teachers back in Matthew chapter, uh, I believe it was 24. We find that the apostle Paul has turned false teachers over to Satan in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We find that James warns that teachers will incur a stricter judgment. That is James chapter 3. Teaching scripture is a wonderful privilege that should not be taken lightly. God wants his truth to be clearly taught, and he wants his believers, his followers, to believe that truth. So in our text today, the Apostle Paul is confronting those who corrupt the gospel as well as he's confronting those who agree with those corrupt teachings. And in verse number 7, he tells us that these false teachers were disturbing the Galatian churches. And listen to this. And they wanted to distort the gospel of Christ. That word want is important. It's one thing to teach error because you're deceived. It's another thing to distort truth on purpose. This group, he's saying they wanted to distort the gospel. So our question right now is what are the warnings related to corrupting the gospel? And these are warnings. Whenever it says, if anybody brings to you a gospel other than what has been brought to you, he is to be accursed. There's a warning that is associated with teaching a corrupt or a false gospel. So here's the first warning, warning number one. We desert Christ by embracing a corrupt gospel. Verse number six. Here's all the verse says. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. Here it is for a different gospel. Now from the surface, it looks as though this text is maybe describing those who leave the faith or those who lose their salvation because it says they are deserting him who called. It almost sounds like they're walking away, they're losing their salvation, they're abandoning their faith. So due to the confusion that surrounds this topic, I want us to take our time in this one verse. I want us to begin by setting up some individual pieces that help us understand the depth of what is being shared here. Uh, First, the Apostle Paul seems genuinely stunned, stunned at what is taking place in the churches of Galatia. He, He uses the word amazed. That is a very strong word in the Greek language. It means to be astounded or to be bewildered. From the Apostle Paul's perspective, it is difficult for him to fathom what's currently happening in the churches. Now, now he's not shocked that false teachers were spreading deception. He is stunned that believers were so quickly accepting it. He's stunned by that. We should also be shocked by how quickly followers of Christ can receive false teachings, how quickly they they begin to follow after other things that are not grounded in the word. In fact, the word quickly, it can mean easily, soon, or both. And based on the context, it seems like it is both. They were deserting Christ quickly, and they were deserting Christ easily. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment. Perspective, context is everything here. Think about it from the sense that it was the Apostle Paul 
who planted these churches. He's the one that laid their foundation. Now, if these particular churches had been started by Judas, we might not be quite as surprised. I mean, that dude had his own issues right there. We're like, ah, it's understandable. Maybe if these churches were started by Thomas, you could say maybe his doubts rubbed off on them. These churches were started by Paul. The same guy who wrote two-thirds of the books of your New Testament. The same guy who started most of the churches in the New Testament. The, the same guy who fought tooth and nail for the essence of the gospel. That's the guy who founded these churches and who laid the gospel foundation. Apart from Jesus, there is no other person in Christ, Christianity who has done more for the cause of Christ than the Apostle Paul. And yet, they were quickly and they were easily walking away. That text scares me to death. When I think about the people I've had a chance to lead to Christ, I think about the people I've had a chance to disciple, and I think about the people I've had a chance to pastor in 22 years, it might be easy for me to say they're safe because I know the foundation they have. It might be easy for me to say I think they're going to be okay because I know what has been laid in their life. I've done my best to try to lay a solid biblical foundation. I've done my best to try to encourage people to focus on an intimate, vibrant, growing relationship with God. So when I look at that, I'm, I might feel as though they're safe. But I wonder if the Apostle Paul was thinking the same thing. I wonder if he's not only shocked by what they were doing, but by who was doing it. I wonder if he's sitting there thinking, Larry, we're just going to call one of them Larry. Larry, I led you to Christ. I discipled you for six months. What are you doing? Why are you believing this? You know better than that. I wonder if he is shocked by what he's hearing. But please hear me in this. On this side of heaven, none of us are immune from slipping into error. All it takes, all it takes is straying from the foundation of Christ. All it takes is chasing after some new revelation of listening to teaching that's going to tickle our ears. All it takes is any of us running towards error and all of a sudden we find ourselves believing things and embracing things that are unbiblical. Over 22 years of being a pastor, I've encouraged people do not believe what I say because I'm a pastor. Only believe it if it aligns with what the Word of God says. If it doesn't align with the Word, challenge me on it after the service. And I, I'm okay with that. I don't think that is being disrespectful. If I were to get up here and to preach something that is unbiblical and a believer come to me and say, Paul, I, I don't know if I see that in the Word. If I cannot come back to you and say, here's what Scripture says, here's how I got there. If I can't do that, I should not have shared it in a message. I encourage you, go back and see that what I'm teaching is in alignment with the Word. Now, I'm going to camp out here in a different way for just a moment. 
And in fact, on this one, I'm going to talk specifically with parents. And, and what we're about to do, it might seem random for a moment, but I want you to consider this to be a spiritual boomerang. We're going to come back. It's going to go full circle. It's going to come back into the text if you track with me. Now, if you get lost along the way, I can't help you on the other side. I'm going to throw the boomerang. Whether or not you're going to watch it all the way is going to be up to you. But it, here's just a few things I want to share specifically with parents. In fact, this might be the reason God has you in this room tonight. It might be the reason God has you watching online tonight. What I'm about to share if you will embrace what I'm going to share, it could absolutely help you to develop and foster the created potential that God has placed in your child. And it will absolutely keep you and your children from a lot of heartache down the road. Are you ready for it? Thank you. Man, you all are getting better and better as the night goes on. Okay, so here it is. For over 20 years, I have taught that two of the greatest gifts that you can give your kids are a godly heritage and a stable home. A godly heritage and a stable home. Teach your kids to love Christ. Be an example for your kids. Help, help them to see what it looks like. Model it before them. Uh, don't only tell them that you need to study Scripture. I want you to live it before them. I want you to walk it out before them. I, it needs to be that your kids are going to stumble into a room and find their parents on their face before God. It needs to be that they need to walk in and your Bible is open on the kitchen table and you're spending time in the Word with God. It needs to be that they're watching you live out your faith as a faithful disciple of Christ. They need to see that within the home. Teach them. Train them in the home. Give them the blessing of having a godly heritage. And as you do, ask God to help you to create a stable, calm, loving home. Your kids are under assault in this world. Ungodly influences are coming against them in every direction. Ungodly influences are encouraging them to embrace unbiblical values. They are being encouraged day by day in every form of stream, in media, in school many times, in culture. They are being encouraged to go through and find their identity and their worth in the things of this world and not in their identity in Christ. And when they come home, they need a place where they know they are safe. They need to know mom and dad love each other. They need to know that when they are home, it's okay. They need to know when they get home that they are fearfully and wonderfully made by their creator. Their identity is not found in the world. Their identity is found in Christ. It is Christ who gives them their identity. They need to know that. Now, why do I share those things? I'll give you two reasons for that. None of this, I don't think, is in your notes. Here's my two reasons. In the last 22 years of being a pastor and a counselor, over 95% of the people who have come to me for help had either one or both of those missing in their life. They either did not have a godly heritage and had no idea how to walk out their faith, or they came from a very unstable home where they never felt secure at any point along the way. And whenever 
they would come and they're asking for help. I try to get their story, and I find the same thing happen again and again. The impact of not having those things early on in the formative years of your child's life can have long-term repercussions on them and future generations that come behind them. But when kids have been blessed with a godly heritage and a stable home, listen, they can weather storms better. They can process life better. They understand their identity better. They make better decisions, and they are better prepared to pursue Christ personally. My second reason for sharing the information is because parents are the primary disciplers of their kids. I praise God for an incredible children's ministry and student ministry. I praise God for a Christian school, SCA, connected right here. And every leader, every teacher, every helper in all of those ministries, they have a desire to partner with the parents to disciple the kids well. But here's the thing. Ultimately, the parents are the disciplers of their kids. The church cannot accomplish in three hours a week what God has called the parents to do in 168 hours out of the week. Parents are the primary disciplers. Now, if you disciple your kids well, and that is you're preparing them for life, you are preparing them to experience a strong relationship with God, if you do that well, oh, mm, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get in trouble. Here it is. You're not going to be able to maybe allow them to be a part of every group, every sport, in every event and that's okay sometimes it will mean that you as the parent will be misunderstood by others sometimes you're gonna have to walk alone sometimes those around you're gonna say but but they need this for their development oh listen I am NOT against sports I am NOT against events I am NOT against all of those other different things but all I can say is, if the parents do not have an opportunity to disciple their kids well, one day when they stand before their creator, the question is not, how many years did you play ball? The question is not, could you put on a dance recital? The question will be, what have you done with Jesus, who is the Christ? And parents, it's up to us to prepare our kids for that moment. God has entrusted them in our homes for a reason. We, we get an opportunity to love our children well and to teach them and to train them well. It is up to us to be able to do that for our kids. The reason I bring these things up is because there are unbelievably disturbing statistics that are out there about the long-term effect that churches are having right now on actually discipling their kids. They're not good. So the builders, those who were born before 1946, 60% are members of churches, and 70% of those who are not are open to attending. Of the boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, 40%, listen to the word changing, are affiliated with the church. Not members, affiliated. You can already start to see a separation. And 35% of those who are not currently are open to attending. Gen Xers born between 1965 and 1979, 18% are affiliated with the church. 12% of those who are not are open to attending. Millennials born between 1980 and 1996, 9% affiliated with the church. 
only 4% of those who are not are open to attending. I'm stopping with the millennials because that's the current lowest part of the parental uh, gap right there. Did you know of the 9% of millennials that are currently attending, 80% will stop attending by the time they're 29? You don't get over Jesus. Something's wrong with our discipleship. Something's wrong where people are embracing other ideas and and other values that they are not looking at it the way Paul does in Galatians when he says knowing Christ is a surpassing value. They're looking, they're saying, I value this more and that more and something else more. Something is wrong when generation after generation we keep losing them. And the gospel's not lost its power. The message does not need to change. The issue many times comes back to what are we doing with it in our homes and what's happening within the church. If the gospel is going to make the impact that God intends for it to make, it's going to be because believers get so engrossed in the gospel that they could not imagine their kids walking out of their house and not knowing it in the depth of their being. One day down the road when your children are needing to make key decisions, one day down the road when they're making decisions about your grandkids and your great-grandkids, you're going to be grateful to God for every second you entrusted the gospel in their hearts. Those are the things that will help them at that time. So all of that being said, we've got a lot of other stuff to get through. Really, most of that was not in my focus right now. I already told you I could preach at least a couple of weeks on verse number 6, but I actually got to get back into verse 6. So I told you there was going to be a boomerang. Here's where it comes back. The apostle Paul is the one who addressed people in this church who were quickly and easily deserting Christ for lies. If it happened to the Apostle Paul, don't think it can't happen here. Church attendance in the past does not prevent against rejecting Christ in the future. Even under the best of circumstances, some people will walk away. But if we have not done everything that we can do to entrust the gospel well, we're the ones playing into the enemy's hands. Here's just a statement. God burned it in my heart this last week. The church of tomorrow is based on the discipleship of today. The church of tomorrow is based on the discipleship of today. That brings us to our million-dollar question at this point. In this text, if the, the, the Galatian believers were deserting Christ, does that mean they lost their salvation? Or does that mean that they were never truly saved? The answer to both is no. In fact, these people are absolutely, clearly saved. I want you to listen to some of these phrases. Paul calls them brothers in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 11, 3, verse 15, 4, verse 12, 5, verse 13. He says they have God's spirit. Chapter 3, verse 5. He calls them sons of God. Chapter 4, verse 6. He also goes and refers to them as those who know God and are known by God. Chapter 4, verse 9. Paul is not questioning their salvation. 
he is questioning and challenging their understanding of how do they live as those who are saved. So if they were Christians, and verse number six says they deserted Christ, doesn't that mean that they lost their salvation? No. The reason for this is because Scripture is what provides our context. Verse number six has to be seen within the context of the letter itself. It is not an isolated remark that is written within a vacuum. Rather, it is a part of a train of thought that the Apostle Paul is unwrapping through every one of the chapters all the way through this particular book. So here's his focus all the way through the book of Galatians. He is saying, you began in the Spirit by grace. Why are you attempting to be perfected by the law? That's his question. He just keeps asking him the same thing over and over. So in chapter 3, verse 3, he says it like this. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected in the flesh? In chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, he says the law has been our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law had a purpose. It was to lead us to Christ. Chapter 4, verse 9, it says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn your back again on the weak and the worthless elemental teachings to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Chapter 5, verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. The theme of the entire letter is, you began by the Spirit in grace. Why are you attempting to be perfected now by the law? The context is not, are you saved? The context is, do you understand how to walk as a believer? Because something has gotten messed up in the process. Now look back at the specific wording. The term deserting in verse number 6 was a military term. It's used of military desertion. The verb is reflexive. It's indicating an act that is voluntary. Think about that for a moment. These believers were not passively, unknowingly walking away. Rather, they were actively removing themselves from the path of grace to put themselves back under bondage. This isn't in my notes either, but there's a lot of that that's going on right now. I've had people come to me over the years, and especially if they came out of extremely legalistic backgrounds, and when they hear grace, it sounds too good to be true. And all of a sudden, it's like the world opens up, the Word of God opens up, it gets exciting, they are thrilled, and they are champions of grace. But then over time, there's something comfortable about the law, and they put themselves back. They begin to put a new set of rules, a new set of, uh, of restrictions on themselves that because there's something comfortable about knowing I'm bound, I'm, I'm here. But when you're walking with Christ, it, there's freedom in that. In this section, this is a group that is voluntarily putting themselves back in subjection to the law. So here's the reason that's important once again, for us, if we understand the teachings of Christ, we understand that they began to pursue Christ on the path of grace. And these false teachers are coming in and saying, to be right with God, you not only need to place faith in Jesus, you also need to now keep the law. And here's what's happening. 
Some were deserting Christ on the path of grace, and they're returning to life under the law. And they would not say, I'm rejecting Christ. Here's what they would say. Christ is enabling me now to keep the law. See how quickly it can come back? But listen, the path of Christ is solely the path of grace. When a person enters relationship with God through Jesus Christ, they enter a grace-filled life. Here's what I mean. We are saved by grace, Ephesians 2.8. We stand in grace, Romans 5.2. We live by grace, 1 Corinthians 15.10. We are strengthened by grace, 2 Timothy 2. And we endure by grace, 2 Corinthians 12. The path of Christ is solely the path of grace. He does not have a path according to the law and a path according to grace and give people the option of choosing whichever one they would like. It is a path of grace. Now that's important because we either pursue him by grace or we pursue our idea of him according to the law. When a Christian attempts to follow Christ by obeying the law, they're not actually following Christ because he's not on that path. They're not taking his yoke upon them. They're taking the law upon them. They're doing things their way, and they're tacking his name to the other side. The Apostle Paul did not tolerate the smallest amount of legalism being mixed in with grace. To reject even a portion of God's grace is to choose self-effort over the power of God. It is a manifestation of pride and it will remove someone from the sustaining power of grace. Now, I'm going to give you two diagrams to show you what I mean here. The first is called a circle of pride. The second is going to be a circle of humility. So in the circle of pride, it should be very familiar to all of us. That is, when temptation comes into our lives, we try to overcome that sin and we often find that we try to do it by our own self-effort and will. We say things like, I can handle this. And here's what happens. Proverbs 16, 18 kicks in. Pride goes before destruction. We lose the battle, but we don't give up. We get a second wave of determination. We say, starting tomorrow, I'm going to get it right. I know what I did wrong. I'll be prepared next time. And we may even experience temporary success for a period of time. Did you know the enemy does not mind you having temporary success if it fools you into relying on yourself for the long term? He, he doesn't mind you getting a week or two of success if he can come back through and knock the legs out from under you again a month from now. So here's what happens. We get temporary success. There's a reprieve that comes. And in that moment, here's what happens. We say, I did it. I beat it. Pride kicks in and destruction follows and the cycle repeats itself. Here's the next diagram. It's the circle of humility. It starts in the same place with temptation. Temptation comes, but this time we admit our inadequacies. We humble ourselves before God. We, we follow what James 4, 6 says. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Uh, God's grace is God's unmerited favor where he does in us and through us and for us what we could never do for ourselves. And in that moment, when we humble ourselves before God, we are infused with the grace of God, the enabling power of God, and God is able to bring a victory over temptation in that moment. And when that happens, we begin to see sustained victory in our lives. When that happens, we look back and we say, it is the grace of God. I didn't do it. It was God in me. You get the victory, God gets the glory. So here's our boomerang again. Take that idea right back into the text. When a Christian walks away from the path of grace and they go back to the path according to the law, here's what's happening. In that moment, they are walking away from the enabling power of God that will sustain them in the long run. They are walking away from him doing in them and through them and for them what they cannot do for themselves. They are setting themselves up for a lifetime of disappointment. Over and over again, they're going to walk through that same cycle of pride. But whenever they go back to grace and they understand it has to be that God does it in me and through me and for me, and they humble themselves before God. When they do that, he's the one that begins to bring the life change. He changes the character from the inside out. He does things that we could never do in our own power. If our best efforts are not enough to make us acceptable to God, why would we ever think our best efforts are going to be enough to perfect us before God? These believers had not rejected Christ by recanting their faith. They were deserting Christ by rejecting his sustaining grace. Here's the first of those four warnings. We desert Christ by embracing a corrupted gospel. The big truth, what you believe about the gospel determines every facet of your spiritual life. Now, I just want to be very personal as we close things out here. I know that today... I have shared some difficult truths. I shared some harder things in this morning's message. I've shared some harder things in this evening's message. And I'm not sharing these things because I'm mad. I'm actually a genuinely pretty happy guy. <laughs> I, I love life. I love Jesus. I love being here. It, it's, it's got nothing to do with that. It's just these are the types of pieces that if they're not addressed as clearly as possible, they will be the ones to keep people stumbling for years down the road. But when these things are addressed clearly, and people can say, that's something that's getting in the way of my relationship with God. Or people can look back in a text like this and say, I want not only to walk faithfully before my kids, but at the same time, I don't want to think that all because my kids grew up at Sherwood that they're immune from spiritual deception in the future. You can't coast for a day. The enemy doesn't stop. The enemy's coming. The enemy is attacking. Chances are every person in this room can think of friends or family members who used to be walking side by side with you in close relationship with God. And right now, they started listening to something or they got deceived by something and they've started stumbling along the way. 
if you love people, you have to love the truth that sets them free. And those types of truths sometimes are hard to go down. I try to do as many of them as I can with a smile on my face to at least fool you into thinking it's not as bad as it is. But I want people to get the truths of God's word. So here's my prayer. May God help you to work out this week what he's been working in. My prayer is that in this next week, there's going to be some moments where God's going to say, here's a piece that happened on Sunday. Here's how you live it out today. Next week, I, I know this is crazy. Next week, I'm more excited than I've probably ever been to preach on a Sunday morning. I got some stuff God is going to give me a chance to share. I'm thrilled about Sunday night. Mm, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. I want to encourage you. Be back. Invite someone to come with you. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. We're going to have a word of prayer. I'm going to have Seth and the band kind of play us out in worship. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we recognize that there are so many attacks, so many things that are coming against families right now. Things that are coming against individual believers. And God, we're asking tonight that you would create a thirst and a hunger in the hearts of your people that we go deep with you. God, give us eyes to see the ways the enemy is beginning to attack and to infiltrate our families. God, help us to walk close and clean before you. God, when we go to bed tonight, I pray, Lord, that you would whisper into our heart the sweetness and the joy of a life that is focused on knowing you. God, when we wake up tomorrow morning, may that be the first thought in our mind that we want to know you more. God, as people open up the word tomorrow morning, there's going to be distractions that come. But Lord, we know that you are more than able to push those off to the side and give unbelievable clarity in the moment. God, help us to spend incredible time with you. God, in our prayer tomorrow, may you begin to remind us of the truths that you've taught, of the answers that you've given, of the urgency of prayer. God, may we walk with a, a different sense of focus. God, we need you every step of the way. Lord, may you work out what you've been working in. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name.